welcome to the Diverse Economy is for Youth podcast. As part of the Dice Collective, our unique podcast connects scholars and leaders in feminist political economies to youth who envision an alternative world that treats them as people instead of as profits. Inspired by the Kumbayi River Collective by African-American women in the 1970s, we invite you to listen along with an open mind and a hopeful heart. I'm your host, Serena Pador, at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Welcome back, everyone, to Season 2, Episode 5 of our Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. This episode is probably one of the most special ones we could ever record. We have the founder of the Dice Collective, Dr. Caroline Shanaz Hussain, here with us today. We're all set for a conversation all around membership-based institutions. What are they? What do they do? What do they mean for society? And what do they mean for our future as the next generation? Our guest and the reason why this podcast can exist is an Associate Professor of Global Development. Dr. Hussain teaches the core development course at the PhD level to students in the University of Toronto's Political Science Program. She is also a Tier 2 Canada Research Chair for Africana Development and Feminist Political Economy. She holds an Ontario Early Researcher Award, serves as a board member to the International Association of Feminist Economics, as an advisor to the Oxford University Press, an editorial board member to the UN Task Force for the Social and Solidarity Economy, and Review for Black Political Economy. Dr. Sain has authored, co-authored, and edited so many books, including Politicized Microfinance, The Black Social Economy, and her newest, Beyond Racial Capitalism, Cooperatives in the African Diaspora. Dr. Hussain also works alongside the Banger Ladies, a community of Black and racialized women engaging with solidarity economies for self-sufficiency. Dr. Hussain, how does it feel to be on the podcast that exists because of you? Um, Well, I'm humbled and I'm grateful to be part of um, this podcast that is reaching to young people because all that we do really needs to reach the next generation. So I'm grateful that you are hosting this show and you're bringing topics alive that hopefully will resonate with a younger generation so they can carry this work forward. Of course, you know, I'm so grateful to be the host. I'm grateful to, you know, start these conversations and have other people listen in on them. And this is a really exciting conversation because we're going to help everyone think through and help ourselves think through what we might imagine when we hear the word institutions. Your work is very versatile in the different types of institutions you study, um, the approaches you take to understand them and how people might interact with them. What kind of institutions would you say are predominantly studied and why do you think this is the case? Yeah, so when we think about institutions and the way that we approach them in the academy, I'm a trained political scientist. That means that I am political economist. I work in and around the idea of how we get social provisioning goods of various sorts to people who are often on the sidelines, marginalized, Um, often not at the table bargaining for what they need. They're often the ones who don't have the power um, in those sort of upper echelons. And so institutions in the academy have historically, at least in my discipline, and a lot of the more formalized disciplines like economics and political science, for example, 
have tended to focus on those institutions that are more formal. It's where they can get data. It's what we see that are tangible. Um, often they're front-facing, so they're the institutions that people can actually identify. Um, and so it makes our study of it a little bit more feasible um, in terms of understanding those relationships with society and whether it be the state or private sector. What we are missing are those institutions that are more hidden. And those are what I refer to as these informal types of institutions that often come out of the grassroots. Thank you, Dr. Hussain. I think your answer perfectly highlighted that there is a spectrum of what we should think about when we hear the word institutions. Usually when people hear that word, we're tempted towards a very linear view, sort of what you were mentioning beforehand. Um, we're usually thinking a formalized building, doing some sort of, quote, official business, right? Institutions as in maybe a university, as in maybe a hospital. And interestingly, when I think of a formal institution, it's always something that ends up being linked to maybe a government or a big corporation. So we know that we have a couple different types of institutions. You mentioned formal and informal. And between these types of institutions, is there a tiering in their analysis within the academy? And can you speak to that? Sure. I think that um, we've been preoccupied with what's formal versus what's informal. And the tiering that you speak of often sets those institutions that are more formalized, more individualistically centered, that might be focused on a profit motive, tend to get a lot of the sunshine and the attention in the academy and elsewhere. Um, but we don't often think about those institutions that are behind the scenes that are often the ones that are in their that are so pluralized and different and reaching all kinds of people behind the scenes without sort of the expectation that they would be studied or examined. And these are the institutions that actually people depend on um, when um, the formal economic system and I speak about the economic system in three parts, right? Um, there is the formal business sector, which is, tends to be very corporate and shareholder-minded. Then you have government, um, state-owned type of institutions. And depending on where you are in the world, will depend whether the private sector or the public sector are the ones that loom large in people's lives. And then you have what is the third sector, and this is sort of a messy terrain. So if you, your listeners get in their heads, they can think of it as like a Venn diagram with these three types of sectors with some overlapping. So the assumption is that the third sector, which is more community focused, um, they're thinking about the social. We often refer to it here in Canada as the social economy. Other parts of the world are calling it the solidarity economy, but it's where all these sort of people-focused type of institutions go. So you have the state, private sector, and then the social economy, third sector. And it's really in the third sector that you see different types of institutions, both formal and informal, appearing in the multiplicity of what they are. And meaning that there's so much, so much attention to difference in the social economy 
which then fills in the gaps when more formalized institutions like the state or private sector are exclusionary to certain groups of people who then find refuge in this third sector social economy. And that's where the tiering starts, right? That's where our biases come out um, when we think about these relationships with institutions. So for example, institutions that might be more member focused, collective, with a group of people deciding on issues in the informal and doing that sort of under the radar, like mutual aid institutions, often are seen as less important or less serious or less worthy of study because people can't see the scaling up or the growth, because that's what we're fixated on, how that can help society, right? And so there is that sort of bias that comes into play when we think about institutions and then how we rank types of studies and um, appreciate the value of different kinds of institutions. And so those institutions that are more informalized, they may be more collective, focused on sort of the democratic structure of an institution tends to be those that are tiered um, less, sort of seen as um, not as important as more corporate institutions or the study of the state, for example. So there are these inherent biases, but what's, what's missing really is to start, for us to start thinking about how these institutions engage with those more formalized institutions and is there room in our learning right for us to start to expand it and to get rid of these kind of binary operations of formal versus informal and so i think that there we are shifting our mindset the pandemic actually has helped us to think through the value of membership institutions, but also institutions that are less formal or non-formal and the service they provide to humankind, not just in the West, but the world over. Of course, you know, I don't agree with the fact that formalized institutions are seen as you know, the pinnacle of what society should reach for. It doesn't surprise me that within the academy, formal institutions are tiered above or are more widely accepted and recognized because an academy itself is seen as a formal institution. It almost protects the status of an academy to do that. And so it protects the status of the status quo too. So to me, it's sort of like a way to gatekeep that status as legitimate. So if formal institutions, including the academy, can reserve that ability to delegate who gets that status, it decides what and whose services and experiences are seen as good enough. That tiering creates a power dynamic, kind of like you mentioned, um, that we know can rest on many, many others. Formal institutions typically highlight, like you mentioned again, the successes of individualism. Yeah. And you teach, research, deliver talks, write books about and with communities and collectives. You started this DICE Collective to bring people together, amplify a collaborative message, and to start conversations like these. Pushing a collective like you do with DICE, what does that work take in environments, uh, academic environments like you've been describing? Yeah, so 
This is a great, good question. It's a tough question, so I'm going to be a bit real because I think it's good for young people to hear what I'm going to say, um, particularly when you're often on the receiving end of learning knowledge from scholars in the academy. Um, so DICE, the Diverse Solidarity Economies Collective, is a group that was formed a few years back um, of most of us are feminist political economists. We're around the world. We have a satellite in Kerala, India. Um, and we are really pushing for recognition of social provisioning done through various plural types of institutions that are really people-centered, that are focused on the collective, that are pushing against sort of corporate forms of the ways in which we acquire knowledge in the ways in which we theorize about business in society more generally. And so definitely many of those scholars that are working in the DICE Collective take on personal risks just by the virtue of the work that they choose to do. They are bringing to light the work that is unseen. They're meddling and innovating in theory that is seen as um, questionable theory that it can be offensive um, to more mainstream ideas in political economy and development studies at large. And I think that the DICE Collective together is how we do things. So, for example, people, students aren't often aware that um, in the academy we privilege individualized work. So meaning that the more you write on your own and alone um, and by yourself is sort of like the golden rule. And I'm not sure if that's across disciplines, but definitely in the fields of politics and economics, there tends to be this golden rule of writing on your own, um, your work, your own work. And for a while, we have to do that in some places to kind of get through this kind of process to advance in the academy. But there comes a point when you start changing as a researcher. And if you're studying collective institutions for as long as I've been, for more than a decade, you start to realize that a lot of the scholarship you do is actually better when it's fused with other people's work and writing. And so a group of us, and this is not uncommon, like a lot of the work we've drawn from um, the Community Economies Research Network or Collective, they also have a number of people who write together and quite closely for decades, like uh, J.K. Gibson Graham. Um, and we've used this whole idea of diverse economies quite seriously in the DICE Collective. Many of us do. And for us, it's been really important for us to, what we say, write collaboratively, write collectively, publish, and make our work, work known together. And there are risks when you do that because the people who, your peers who often evaluate you are often not convinced that this kind of work, this approach in scholarship is the right one because the academy subscribes to, by and large, a more individualized way of determining excellence, success, the ways in which we rank 
um, often is very individualized projects. And so quietly, I think in so many ways over the years, we've been refuting that and more and more coming together as a group of women working on various regions of the world to bring our expertise together makes no sense for us to engage in this voyeurism of as academics to travel various landscapes to understand phenomenon when there are lots of scholars working on those terrains who can work with us collaboratively and make those stories known. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Hussain. What you've just said uh, is something that can't be achieved without the determination and the continued perseverance that you need in order to push against the expectations of formal institutions. When people's lives, needs, their goals don't fall in line with what formal institutions give them or they can't access what those institutions promise, a creative solution of their own is necessary. And we can view that as an inspiring thing. I find that to be an inspiring thing. What I love about your work is that as an academic, as a person, as a feminist political economist, you view this not just as research, but as a way of life. You view the communities you study as people that live their lives in a way that is to be admired. So you don't frame their actions, um, working within member-based informal institutions, within social and solidarity economies, using uh, Roska systems as something that they were reduced to. And yes, those systems have been used out of survival, out of necessity, but it's also something, like you said, to be seen and heard, celebrated. I was wondering if you could share more about the framing of your research. Yourself, as the Dice Collective's founder, and many other members that we have interviewed on this podcast, you all work with a particular framing that amplifies the abundance of what we have. Why is this framing important to the evolution of the Dice's work? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question because, you know, I think that's a political stand we take as feminist economists, as feminist political economists. We are, most of us are women of color, um, Black. Many of us are from the global South. We have that lived experience of what othering looks like and in the academy. But for sure, we see this um, in the ways in which we engage with the people we work with. And so for us, it was really um, not to be stifled by kind of like a special victims unit, not for us to constantly be viewed as people with a problem. Um, I think as a person of African descent, of Caribbean heritage, it's important for us to recognize the wrongs, the traumas, the business exclusion, for sure. But it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all defining point of who we are, because we're more than the script that white supremacy wants to lay before us. We are more than that. And I think that there are important contributions that Global South, people of African descent, indigenous people have contributed to our world economy. And we have minimized it, we have erased it, and now as we see a world raging on fire, 
we start to see the necessity for survival to think through some of those steadfast, traditional, more communal, cooperative ways of working that will save, I think, the planet. And so that's where we are at DICE. And a part of that work, we believe, is looking towards um, building. And when I say that, I mean recognizing, as you said, the abundance of expertise, the abundance of local knowledge, of on-the-ground um, development done by many women um, in community, outside of community, that have just been ignored for far too long, not credited, not cited, not recognized. And this work that we're doing is about uplifting, framing more of what we do as celebrity and move away from a deficit framing of who we are as people of African descent. And so we're interested in really showcasing the various ways that people counteract commercialized corporate exclusion with their own systems that are often seen as inferior, but effective in mitigating the harms that happen, right? And so we're not ready for people to rescue us. We never have been. So what are the kinds of devices we've always had that we can share with the rest of the world? And so that's where we're coming from. And the women that I've learned I mean, research changes people, and any good scholar who's been working in development for some time, the more you read, it's kind of like the more you realize you don't know, but what you do learn is that research changes you, and it should change you for thinking through how do we listen better, um, how do we um, do things that might put us on the line for the kinds of work we're doing. And it happens, you know, like as you start to build a research agenda, you start to realize that, you know, it's limited if we don't have the cooperation of the very people we're working with. And part of that means spelling out the kinds of activities, the expertise, the knowledge that they already possess that, that we need to take hold of and to learn about and really to celebrate and to recognize that that's, that's the good stuff. And um, there's a degree of risk when you start to go into those nooks and crannies and informal spaces to kind of mine those ideas. And so that's kind of where we're at at DICE. It's like more abundance, more celebrity, less deficit victimhood, and more about how do we stand in the ideas of self-help um, the idea, like Marcus Garvey has, you know, Bob Marley, all these people have been singing and speaking to us in community about what we already have. And so how do we bring that goodness, economic, social, what have you, to the fore to help the world move forward? I appreciate you elaborating on that, Dr. Sain. 
And I think that the point you made is absolutely central to this conversation. The idea of framing has such a profound impact on the way we view certain races, certain communities, institutions, even ourselves. And every time we are framed from that place of deficit, it threatens to have the world forget that we actually write our own script, a script that's already out there, as you've been saying, it's been there all throughout history. We all know those stories of trauma and pain, and we leave them as a footnote in our stories of joy and peace. Instead, we have to tell our stories of success, compassion, community, celebrate our values that bring so much more in our experience of humanity. As a final question, if you could have everyone listening today remember only one thing from our discussion on the value of membership-based institutions, what words do you think we should carry with us? So I think going forward, I think it's for students, for young people, this generation coming up behind us, to definitely explore what's not seen, what has been purposefully erased, um, what what is it that we want to silence and try to make visible those who are invisibilized. I think that that's the key. And that's hard work. It takes time. It means that you have to hang out and incubate with folks, sort of bring a kind of humility to the work that you're doing to recognize that people together are figuring out solutions that are not driven on a rational actor, but more for how do we cooperate and get together? I think that that's kind of the kind of thinking I hope I impress upon with my work is that we need, right now the time is so urgent, is that we need to start uplifting um, the collective. And when I say that, I mean democratically controlled institutions, cooperative, self-help, mutual aid, associational life, both in the informal and formal, that often are hidden or ignored, pushed to the background because there has been a deliberate intention to make commercial corporate industry seem like that's the only alternative. And when we start to see through that, then it's our responsibility to start emphasizing what cooperative membership institutions look like. Take inventory of them, document them, promote them in every way we can. You don't have to be a scholar or an academic to do this work. If you are working in the nonprofit sector, if you are a donor, if you are a policymaker, the time is now for you to make space, create those budget lines, new programming, that starts to think about collective membership type of institutions that, that can be vested in real transformation. Because when we abide by donor requirements that want to specify individual ways of working, I don't know, small entrepreneurship for the individual, then we lose sight about what transformation looks like for more of us.
And that's where we're at. Membership institutions that are locally grounded, situated in your own backyard is where we start. And make sure that those institutions are democratic and collective and really do value principles of reciprocity and voice from community. Thank you for leaving us on that inspiring note, Dr. Saying Many of us, especially our youth, we've been prescribed so many beliefs about what institutions matter, what ones deserve our interaction. And your work serves to rewire those assumptions. It exposes us to a full spectrum, not just of types of institutions, but ways of life and why we should celebrate that. The way that we frame membership-based institutions, the way we frame value can change the way we perceive our future and how we can pursue it. You've inspired me. I know that you've inspired our listeners to pursue what we value over what the status quo values. Thank you again for coming on this episode, Dr. Sane. And this concludes our conversation on the Diverse Economies for Youth podcast. Thank you so much to Dr. Caroline Shanaz Hussain for coming onto our podcast and giving us her authentic take on the positionality and future of membership-based institutions. And of course, for her true devotion to the Dice Collective. To keep thinking with us, send us any questions, comments, or ideas you might have at Africana underscore economies on Instagram and Facebook and at Africana Economy on Twitter. The Diverse Economies for Youth podcast is made by youth for youth and made possible by funding from the Canada Research Chair for Africana Development and Feminist Political Economies at the University of Toronto Scarborough. I'm your host, Serena Bahador, and next month we'll have a new episode of our podcast where we learn how to create a world that treats us as people instead of as profits. Thank you for listening and happy holidays. Mm-hmm.